0: (laughs) Mm. and chex mix and whatever sarah has european oatmeal honey bunches of oats oh muesli muesli. Mm -hmm. i learned what that is today i was today years old when i learned what that was (laughs) we are excited to
1: have you all join us today we have two amazing women from north atlanta sarah higginbotham and donna Nasmith, and they are going to talk to us about The legal system in America. We're going to dive in, but first, a few introductions. So, ladies, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself.
2: Hi, I'm Sarah Higginbotham, and I have been a member at North Atlanta for 20 years with my husband, and we've raised our three children at the church. And I am a teacher, I teach second graders at North Atlanta for 20 years. And I teach at Emory University. I teach Shakespeare and writing. And I also teach inside the Georgia prison system for the last 13 years. I've spent over 3000 hours right, um, cumulatively teaching literature and writing inside men's and women's prisons throughout Georgia.
3: <clears throat> and I'm Donna Nasmith. I've been at North Atlanta or with the specific congregation for 38 years. Raising my all three of my children, Ibrahim, Aisha, and Faith, adult children, and now I have grandchildren. That is probably my um, my new job, and um, so I'm enjoying that. Um, I don't come with any particular um, expertise, but a growing um, passion or um, an interest in the subject. Um, Sarah has invited me to join this conversation because we served together with Career of the Families here in Atlanta with um, Sandra Barnhill. So I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Sarah, and thank you for having me. I hope that um, this blesses everybody.
0: Thank you both. Um, If you ever get a chance, just pop in Sarah's second grade class. I learned more in that Bible class. (laughs) but I think I did in some other places. And it was uh, a fun experience. She passes out whiteboards and you get to write it. And I definitely had a whiteboard and I was taking notes just with the second (laughs) grade. It was a fun day. And Miss Donna-
1: My daughter Danielle was in um, her class and but she continued the class during um, the pandemic. So, you know, you all were virtual and Danielle just every Sunday could not wait to have her class with you. So thank you for instructing the babies.
0: Well, and Donna, we, uh, Donna and I had a, a bedside chat once. Do you remember at the Super Bowl party? Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> it was just too overwhelming. And the Falcons were playing that year, and we were both like, this is too much. So we just went up and laid in Donna's bed to watch like SBU or something.
3: <laughs> no, we watched, I think we watched um, 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 Downton Abbey. Yes.
0: <laughs> Yeah,
3: it was much better than the Super Bowl. Yeah. Anytime, any day, Downton Abbey,
0: right? Mm. Yes. Anyway, back to our regular scheduled programming. <laughs> I think we'll probably just kick it off with just kind of get a general question uh, based on both of y'all's experience. Um, what, what have you seen as being an impact to families? Like how has legal system impacted families? What does that look like? Um, can you kind of, kind of un, like address this topic at a high level for our students watching or anyone watching, um, to kind of like start lay a foundation and like a baseline for further conversation?
2: I'll start, Donna. but you have a lot of experience working with the children of moms who are in prison. So... Um, we can both weigh in on this, but I will say that even after um, having taught inside a men's prison for five and a half years, I had actually given very little thought to the impact on the family. So even when I was directly involved in the criminal legal system, I didn't think a whole lot about the um, moms and the dads and the partners and in particular, the children. But the truth is, is that there are two and a half million kids in this country yeah. who have a parent who is incarcerated. And in particular, when that incarcerated parent is a mom, um, that means the children are typically moving in. If, they're, if, if there is a family member and they don't have to go into state custody, they're typically moving in with an auntie or with a grandmother those grandparents can be working several jobs they can be in poor health and suddenly they find themselves raising children and i'm looking forward to hearing what donna has to say about this but what is what's surprising and heartrending for someone like me who loves children or anybody who's a member of the human race is that we might think these kids are better off not seeing their parents because the parents made mistakes but all the research says otherwise. The research shows that if the children and the parents can be in touch during the incarceration then the children are healthier psychologically, emotionally, behaviorally and so are the parents and when the parents are released, it's so much easier to resume that relationship than if the parent just disappeared. That is particularly true if the child viewed the arrest, which is pretty common. So, and I know Donna and I all want to share our experience. Go ahead, Donna. I don't know if
3: I have a lot to say um, about the specifics, but I can't help but think about what recently happened in the Jacob Blake situation when... Um, this young man with his children witnessing his shooting and all the things that happened and how traumatic that is when children see their parents arrested or in that type of trauma and crisis. Um, it's just difficult and it's and it's so traumatizing and so um, it happens so quickly. You don't have a chance to get a hold of yourself. It just happened. Then who then takes care? When the arrest happens, where, does, where, do, I, where do I go? And who, it's just so upsetting and so jarring. And then they go into, and like you said, an auntie or a grandmother. And grandmothers are often, or anybody's just ill-prepared. They don't have diapers, You know, they, they're just ill-prepared. And so children have to survive that, and then then the bond is broken at that moment. And to try to um, um, repair the bond is really difficult. Oftentimes, the place that they, that uh, the parent ends up in is three hours away, sometimes more. And that's what forever families does is to cart them out there to to. Um, Take them on a bus and take them out to sea. If the parent or the caretaker has no way of getting to this facility, then the children the children lose out. They only get to see their mama and their daddy once a month. So it's just really, really difficult. Um, during the, and oftentimes they don't see their parents because they're so far away and there's no one to take them, or the caretaker doesn't have a car or no transportation. It's a pretty traumatizing situation.
2: Or no gas money for a six-hour
3: yeah. trip. Yes. Right? Or maybe just and time off from work, mm-hmm. you know? So it's really, really difficult. So what Forever Families does is sets up a, um, a situation um, where they help take care of these kids while their parents are gone and help the caretaker with small things like tutoring and homework mm-hmm. and visits with parents and so one Saturday or any Saturday that a volunteer would go they'd get up really early meet at the church building get on a bus we're talking we got to get down there in time enough to leave to get to the facility by 9 a.m it's three hours away so we're up at four to the building at six and then down over to um the office um where a uh, forever family is um, located. And then we help the kids load up and we give them snacks. And Sarah has found a way to, not Sarah, Sandra, has found a way to, um, uh, the kids have all iPads and things mm-hmm. to do on the bus for the three hours, mm-hmm. the little backpacks and all their stuff in it. And they get on that bus. And sometimes they fall back asleep because it's tiresome um, and in preparation get there. Um, those who are hosting the kids and taking the kids down, um, sometimes the caretaker goes, but there is a background check then anybody who goes with uh, these children has to have a background check. And so you can't go in unless you've been cleared. And you also need to bring quarters, lots of quarters because you want to put money in the the vending machine so the kids can have snacks um, and help the kids with the snacks. When we get online, and then we have to go through a security system along with the children. The children have to go through the same security system and coming through the door. Um, one particular time when Fernando was with us, um, Fernando and Luther, everybody knows Luther Sweet, mm-hmm. right? So um, we're going through and when a teenager uh, couldn't visit his mom because his mom had um, violated some rule or some. Problem there, and so she was put in some. Um, she was punished by not being able to visit her her son. They don't let you know that when you get before you get there. So he took the three hour ride. This young man took the three hour ride in anticipation of seeing his mama, and he couldn't see his mama. And then, of course, he had to stay all day and wait for us to get back on the bus. Fernando and Luther took good care of him. Took him for breakfast and. Hung out with him and took care of him and loved on him and um, consoled him. Um, it was a blessing for Fernando and, and Luther. They're just great guys, anyway. Um, but it was really that was really sad. Um, but while there, you know, when when the mamas come out, they kind of come out in shifts, and they come out and they have these tables. Um, and um, once they get to the table with their family, they're not allowed to move, but everyone else can move around them. And lots of times his Big families visiting their their sons or daughters, um, and the caretakers, and and the children are climbing all over their parents and just loving on them. And they they don't know that mommy and daddy did something wrong and to them. It's just mommy and daddy. We just love mommy and daddy. What an opportunity that these children have um, through the Forever Family um, organization. Um, i grateful for it.
2: And I, I think it's so valuable to hear about what that day is like. So that when, you know, the question is what kind of impact does incarceration have on the family? And mm. I think if you think that through intellectually, you, of course you'd realize that there are going to be really catastrophic economic impacts, right? Um, yeah. But, and, and keep in mind that, you know, the people who go to prison are typically from our most vulnerable neighborhoods. Uh-huh. There right? they're people who couldn't, often could not afford to to purchase representation in court. Absolutely, in, in order to mitigate the sentence, right? That and so uh-huh. already there's financial hardship. We know that the people who we primarily send to prison are from our lowest income brackets, and then but so you could think, okay, well there might be some financial um, implications, but. The truth is, is that when you start thinking about what these children, they have a deep need, a primal need to be connected to their parents, no matter if there was drug use or not, mm-hmm. right. They still yeah. need a mama and, um, mama hmm when you go through, I tell, you know, sometimes my students come or people like Donna and of course, Luther and Fernando and others who have volunteered to go on these trips. I say, get ready for a long day. You get up at four, you get to the prison at nine, you stand in line sometimes for an hour and a half, mm-hmm. just to get, it's like a it's like the worst airplane line you've ever stood in line for. And then when you go through that system of being checked for security, it's you you feel criminalized. Yes. You're kind of like at the airport, you feel yeah. like you've done something wrong, even though you have it. Yes, And so to have people help the children go through that process. Right. And then what we try to do is when we get the kids into the visitation room, we try mm-hmm. to disappear. So we're not hovering. The mom doesn't need, you know, especially in my case, a white person hovering over I think she Uh needs autonomy with those children. That said, if one of the kids is young and needs to go to the bathroom, the mom cannot take her or him. They're not allowed to go into the bathroom with the child. And so that's when another volunteer can step in. I'm telling these details because I think it helps paint a picture Uh for the one day that these kids get to see their parent. There are no video calls most of the time. Uh Some women's prisons have video calls. Um, and then they get on the bus and they have a long trip
3: back. Well, first they don't want to, they don't want to separate from mom. Yeah. That's the, that's the hard part. They've got to separate from mom and we've got to get them back on the bus and we got to get them to walk through the halls, as you were saying, because it feels so like
1: regulation to get them back on the bus. That was going to be my question. Could you talk a little bit about the end of the visit? and how the kids mm. are emotionally impacted to have to leave their parents behind. Well, they don't want to.
3: That'd be number one. And it's traumatizing to get them on the bus. Most times they're just quiet, really quiet. And you don't want to intrude on them if they don't want to be touched or, you know, sometimes they do and sometimes the the little ones do, but the older ones don't want as much of that attention. But a good way to get the attention is to, you know, pick up those, um, uh, Sandra has these evaluation sheets and you help them with the evaluation. You ask them questions about their visit and what they thought about their visit, Um, maybe to draw a picture and there, most of them were. Pre, there was a little girl that I was with was real expressive, and so I said. So, one of the questions was um, um, on a scale of one to ten, how was the visit? And and she said, what does that mean? And so we talk about that. And She was really cute. I don't remember all the questions. I really wish I had saved one of those surveys. But they can be. Pre, the idea is to get them to be expressive and to talk it out. Um, I don't know how much Sandra keeps that information, but um, it was helpful to be able to talk. What do you talk about with them, right? Um, And so we had these these questionnaires that we we used to talk. Sometimes they retreated into a book or or back on their device. And sometimes they just went to sleep because the trip is three hours. It's a long, long trip.
2: I, I think, too, the very first time I went, um, this is probably in 2010 or so, 2011, maybe, and, you know, getting there. And when you when the moms see their kids, I mean, it's the most mm-hmm. beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes, you know, if the women have had really good behavior, they're allowed to go in a certain room and actually hold the children. Otherwise they do have to, they can have one embrace and then they have to sit at these kind of like, you know, institutional tables. But uh-huh.
3: uh-huh.
2: like, if they can hold them, they're braiding their hair and uh-huh. just covering them. And, you know, like I'm a mom, you can see them smelling the kid's hair uh-huh. like moms want to do, you know? Yeah. And I just thought, I remember thinking I'm gonna do this all the time. I'm gonna do this trip. As often as I can, mm-hmm. and then it's time to go. And yeah. there are some families where you just have to see that the correctional officers are almost just peeling those kids off the moms. And it is it's so, so heartbreaking that I, at that at the end of that first trip, I said I will never do this again. <laughs> I don't think I can bear it. But the truth is, and you know, we're discussing a nonprofit, an Atlanta-based nonprofit called Forever Family the truth is, is that the kids who are involved in that program really are a little less traumatized because they know they yeah. have a regular trip. Yes, those kids, they, It might be a year, it might be three years mm-hmm. before they see their parent again. But if you know, you're coming every second Saturday and you can get on the bus and then there's the Kindles and there's the snacks and there's yeah. Donna who's going to, you could sit in her lap and Miss Donna and, you know, and so that really showed me, um, you know, as a Christian woman, I mean, I believe in the intercession of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And it shows me that that the, those small acts that we do to intercede for each other, right? Whether I'm not talking about whether or not the woman did was involved in drugs or not, was involved in some kind of I'm just talking about keeping kids in touch with their moms. Even yeah. while they're working their way through the criminal justice system, and I think those are the kinds of small acts of intercession that we can do as an act of gratitude, you know, for our own, for our own freedom. So, obviously, so, that the 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 idea of families and incarceration is something that affects
1: Donna and me a lot. Yeah. Um... First of all, thank you so much for for sharing about this organization and and what it does. I wasn't familiar with it. And now I'm trying to figure out how I can help volunteer because um, it is. That sounds Mm -hmm. like a lot (laughs) emotionally, but also um, such a a powerful way to to positively impact a lot of lives. who might need it the most. So very excited to learn about this organization. You want to tell us the website? Yes. Yeah. So it's
2: it's actually um uh Shout out to Sandra Barnhill, who we're mm-hmm. Sandra was a young black attorney in the South when she started this organization. Won a big class action lawsuit against a women's prison. But what she recognized was that the women were far more worried about their kids than they were about um, the prison conditions. So it is called Forever Family, and it is um family. WWE, it's Forever Fam dot forever foreverfam dot org or reach out to either of us um we've also don and i have also done um back to school parties at the center for civil and human rights for the kids and one at the high museum and
3: um civil rights museum so yeah yeah that was pretty cool that was yeah. really cool yeah. so um on- you can just google it forever families mm-hmm and it's, it's, you know, it's funny, I found um, when I was doing some, I Google everything <laughs> and <laughs> doesn't everybody? Anyway, so I was looking and there's, there is a, um, a title on the Google page, um, five or seven things you need to know about um, children, of um, aid for support for the children of incarcerated. And one of them that was mentioned was Forever Families hmm. in Georgia. It's like maybe third or fourth on the list. And I said, well, look at that. I think, um, I remember having that lunch with a group of those women um, and people that were supporting then. Um, how many years ago was that? A good 10, 12 years ago? Mm-hmm. But isn't of a Family 30 years old?
2: It's more than that. I think it's 34 no. now. It's the oldest yeah. female minority-run nonprofit in all the South. Sandra has oh, run wow. that yeah. run nonprofit
3: for for almost 35 i think going on 35 years now yes and you'll need to know that right on the first page there is um sarah Hingenbotham among some children on the first page i'm looking at it yeah we used to have an after-school
2: program (laughs) so that was tutoring them during the after-school program so
0: yes So what does it look like to volunteer with Forever Family and how has it been impacted by coronavirus? I think Sandra Barnhill has
3: figured out a way to um, have their volunteers come. And so she has uh, reached out to churches um, to volunteer and take um, a Sunday or a few Sundays a year uh, or whatever the schedule is. And so they'll go down on a Saturday um, and... um, ride with the children and be the caretaker for the day. Um, North Atlanta has um, um, committed to three Sundays a year. Isn't that right, Sarah? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then sometimes there's other activities as well. Um, so a group of us get up real early and go down and um, help Sandra and get the kids ready to go and, and rehab uh, that Saturday. So that's how you get involved. Um, At North Atlanta at least. So you can probably call Sarah or me and um, we can serve as your go-between.
1: And
2: during COVID all prison visitation was suspended in February. That was the last visitation. So, um, and it probably will be suspended for the foreseeable future. But Forever Family continues to support the kids with virtual tutoring If you'd like to volunteer to tutor some of these kids, we're doing it by Zoom. We are um, supporting the kids with uh, Christmas presents and they get to choose the presents. They give us a list. So it's very customized to those families and we wrap them. We also um, are helping the um, pay for the parents' online communication that they can pay through a state system. So financial donations would be put to wonderful use right now to keep moms and kids in touch.
1: Okay, Um, Sarah, I noticed you mentioned um, being a a Christian woman in your last answer. And I was, it's a good segue to the second question, Mm -hmm. which is why should the church care about and engage with the injustices in our legal system? Why is this something that we should be talking about at North Atlanta, and on a broader scale, churches of Christ in general, and on a broader scale, just religious institutions um, across the, the country and the world, why is the legal insi- the legal system and what happens in the legal system um, important to churches?
2: I think that's a really important question. And I'm not a big numbers person. Anybody who knows, I'm not an accountant, Shauna, um, but you know, <laughs> I think I started with the statistic that there are two and a half million children right now in the United States with a parent in prison. There are also 2,000 scriptures in the Bible about compassion and justice. 2,000. If you went through and said, okay, well, I just don't think we need to think about justice and compassion, then you're going to be cutting out a lot of the Bible and including. You know, I mean, I'm thinking about the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the good Samaritan, both of which deal with how do you reconcile, not just with the victim, that would be the good Samaritan, right, The you know, our our criminal legal system just ignores the victim and they are just, it's the state, (laughs) you know, uh, the state that's benefiting and the victim is just forgotten. And I look at the parable of the Good Samaritan and see why we need to be thinking about who's been harmed and how do we address those harms? But when you think about the parable of the prodigal son, such a central teaching for me as a Christian Um, and Mm -hmm. the way that that parable does not align with what happens in the United States, which is a system that is called the retributive justice, retribution. That's what kind of criminal system we have. And it asks basically three questions, I, I think. These are the questions that our system, our criminal legal system asks. What law has been broken? Who broke that law? And what is the prescribed punishment for breaking that law? The judges have the rubrics. It's you know hundreds of years of precedents that say, if you get caught with this substance, 15 years, <laughs> If you committed a crime and you had a gun, even if no one got hurt, 20 to 25. And so it's a system that isn't interested in the victim. And is also heavily interested in the imposition of pain. That's how we think in this country. We've, we have this mentality that imposing pain on someone is justice. I think we as Christians should be deeply disturbed by that. You know, we are the core of our religion, centers around the public torture and execution of the son of God as the most horrific and shocking act. We should not be retributive people. We should recognize that we are called to something much different. And so the the justice system that I see operating in the parables of Jesus is what today might be called restorative justice. And this is practiced in some courts in the United States, some drug courts, some veterans courts. It's widely practiced in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, some European countries. But instead of asking those three questions, it asks these, who's been harmed? Mm. And often the person that's been harmed is also the one who's perpetrating a crime. Because you know, people that have been nurtured for 20, 20 years don't often commit crimes. It's, you know, especially violent crimes. Who's been harmed? And then a second question, um, what kinds what it, who's a stakeholder? Because it's not just the victim and the perpetrator, it's other people in the apartment complex, right? it's other people in the neighborhood when a house was robbed. They're they're a stakeholder too. Mm -hmm. Who's been harmed? Who are the stakeholders? And what are the community's obligations here? And I think that's both to the perpetrator and to the victim, such different questions. But when I look at the way that Jesus interacted with people who had messed up, you know, he wasn't asking what law has been broken and what's the prescribed punishment. And is it fifteen to twenty or twenty to thirty or is it life without parole? He was saying, "Who? What's the? What are the needs here? What's the harm that was done?" And um, when I see those two systems, I think, "How could I not? How could I not care about people who have found themselves in that system?" Right? They are oppressed, and I love. I'm turning over to Donna now. I'm talking too long, Donna, but yeah, I. Love- I love Psalms four, and Mm -hmm. Psalm four, um, David says, uh, "No, God says, um, God says, make justice your sacrifice."
3: Mm. And Mm -hmm. so,
2: you know, we think in the Hebrew Bible about you know the bringing the sacrifices to expedite for sin, but what if you know justice is about decentering yourself? That's what it is for me putting myself aside and putting somebody else forward. I want that to be one of the sacrifices that I bring to God out of gratitude. Mm. I have a lot of other feelings, but those are some of
3: them. Okay, Donna, I'll let you talk. Um, my daughter came home to visit. Um, Sarah knows my daughter, Aisha. She has; the, She's wearing it right now. A t-shirt that says, justice is love in action. And so I've been pondering I will get that T-shirt because I thought that was just really cool. And, and um, I pulled up uh, a bunch of scriptures like you did. And, and uh, in Hebrews, um, the, 13th, the third verse says to continue, remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. It never once mentions what the crime is or what the offense is, but remember those in prison. And since I'm a mom, I can relate to those moms who feel a severed uh, love bond with their child while they're in prison, and they want to keep their bond um, alive. And that's just all we're speaking to as women, as, as moms is to help them keep their that bond alive. And then too, since you've all heard comments like, the children are the future, all of that. <clears throat> and that's true. The, our children are a legacy. They bring forth all of what the best of who we are, hopefully. Um, Came across another scripture in Psalms 8, and this just blew me out. It says, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. The praise of children. If we don't step in and help our children stay close to their mamas and and grow up healthy, how do we establish a stronghold? I mean, we're the church. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be defending and freeing and um, showing a great deal of compassion to those who are incarcerated and their families. Because they also, if they're members and should become members, they affect the church too. It is our job.
1: It is our mission. It should be our heart. And one thing also... Um, that I think about when I think about the the criminal system in particular is the fact that not everyone who is wrapped up in the criminal system has committed a crime.
3: Mm.
1: The number of people who are incarcerated who were um, either uh, affected in a case of mistaken identity or um, poor uh, legal defense, or just wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Women, in particular, are often in situations where they are defending themselves from abusive spouses or significant others, and just the, the number of people who are in prison who shouldn't be Mm -hmm. um, is, in my opinion, another reason why the church should be actively engaged in these types of discussions.
3: Most times, and and um, I'm reading a book that Sarah teaches in um, The New Jim Crow, it points out that once you have any involvement inside the criminal system, then your whole life is impacted. You can't get a job. You can't um, get a loan. You can't get an apartment. You can't vote. You can't get insurance. I mean, you are it's so disconnected. have a professional license. You can't sell real estate. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. If you have a felony.
2: Yeah. So you end up living under a bridge. It's just crazy. And if, you're, if your mom or your part or your wife, <clears throat> your partner is living in any kind of subsidized housing and you move in, they, they lose the subsidy. You know, they lose the subsidy because of your felony. And so that means they can't move in. And, you know, and so they can't even be reunited with their family. The whole system is so, it's really? all about mm-hmm. dividing. It's a blame and shame system. You know, is not about reconciliation,
1: um, so. And then if you back up, right, before you even get involved in the prison system, if you look at how schools are run and the, um, the likeliness that little black boys in particular are to be um, suspended or expelled and the whole prison pipeline that happens from a very early age, It's the cards are stacked against some subgroups of the population more mm-hmm. so than others in a way that is, is staggering. Yeah, we have empirical proof that little boys of
2: color are suspended at astronomically higher rates for the same behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. um, as boys who, who are white. So it is, it's, it's called the school to prison pipeline. Right. And, you know, we also know Donna and I were trading, um, emails about this earlier, but, you know, uh, we also know that if your parent has been involved in the criminal legal system and it is six to one black to white in the United States, six Mm -hmm one. You're prison connected, right? You've served time, or at least you've got felony charges, six to one. Um, we know that incarceration predominantly affects people of color and people in poverty and people living in urban communities. Right. And those, um, those children are far, if your, if your parent has been in prison, the chances that you will be in prison are I don't, I can't quote that exact statistic, but it is much, much higher. Um, And you're much more likely to have lower expectations from teachers, parents are in prison, poor academic performance, disruptive classroom behaviors, of course, right? Because their needs aren't being met. They're probably, you know, a lot of the kids that I know, they're living in a two bedroom apartment with seven cousins, you know? Um, being raised by a grandparent. I mean, of course there's poor academic performance and behavior, but then that leads to suspension which leads right straight to the pipeline to juvenile um, uh, custody and then into incarceration. It is a, I mean, I, I just hope that, you know, the question was why should Christians, like why is this important? How are we not how are we not dropping what we're doing right now and trying to get involved in mitigating some of the effects of this, of this system? The research, and this research is done by um, Wakefield and Wildeman, Chris Wildeman and Sarah Wakefield at Cornell. They have shown nationwide that even if the kids don't end up in prison, that their long-term effects are worse even than their parents. There, if your parent goes to prison, the kids actually suffer more psychologically, emotionally, socioeconomically. Um, And oftentimes, you know, not always, sometimes people hurt other people and it's hurt people as we know who hurt people. But, you know, oftentimes it was, okay, I'm just gonna take a plea deal because there's no money for an attorney. And you know, public defenders have eighty cases at a time. Don't have time to really fight and say, "Well, these are the extenuating circumstances." It's easier to do five years, or maybe it's the only thing, the only option that you have. I most hope times, I when you're about
3: make, that, what'd you say, Donna? I was going to say most times when you make that choice, you don't understand all of what you're giving up
2: mm-hmm.
3: on the other end, and you come out and you've got nothing. And you have children Mm -hmm. and so then what do you do you might engage in criminal activity and your children might help you just to survive Mm -hmm. this is it feels like a rigged system it's a Mm -hmm. circular thing a, a revolving door
1: have you all seen um 13th
3: I was just yes. about to,
2: Sarah yes. Cash, I was just about to say, yeah. if you want to know more about it, watch Ava DuVernay's 13th. Yes. You could read Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow too, but you will see that this system, <laughs> thank you, Donna, <laughs> this system is a loophole for the 13th Amendment. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to deny it if you look at the facts.
3: I found a fact. Oh. that children are seven times more likely wow. to go the same route. Seven times. It's frightening.
1: Mm-hmm. Frightening. Have you all, um, or has Sandra done any comparisons or kept statistics to see how children who participate in the family first family program how they do, how having this relationship with their parent helps to improve their life trajectory or change those statistics. Mm-hmm.
2: So much great research, yeah. And you can go to that foreverfam.org and see some
3: of that. There's some, su- su- some really good success stories on that. And um, a lot of the kids come back to help and volunteer, mm-hmm. which is really sweet. We met, um, forgot his name, he's a dancer. Uh, I can see him. I can see him now, but I don't remember his name. But what the children end up with is very simple, hope. Hope that they don't have to go that direction. Yeah.
2: And also that there is a support system in place.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what the church gonna, should do. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because yes. of course they're skeptical of institutions the school, Mm -hmm. the prison, the police. And so, you know, the church could be a place. I know that nonprofits like forever family are that place too. The church could be a place that says you, you know, there's a safety net out here and we're here for you. I, you know, I had that safety net by virtue of my race Mm -hmm. and my parents' education. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're white, and you're female and your parents have graduate degrees like mine do, do you know what the chances are that I would go in prison? I think it's like one in 1,617, it's something like that.
3: Probably minus something. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: And if I, I, you know, then the crime that you do hit, you're not, I'm not I'm not gonna hold up a gas station. If I do, if I'm that desperate, I'm gonna probably commit I'm gonna file fraudulent income taxes. That's what women like me do.
3: And the chances
2: I would go to prison for that are really small because I, even when it comes to desperately needing $15,000, I have options, right? But when you don't have those options, you know, then you're just, I mean, so it's, we think, oh, well, why are they making those bad choices? That's a myth. It's a myth. (laughs) It's a narrative we tell ourselves because it makes us feel better. I don't make good choices. I've had this whole platter of choices offered to me since the day I was born, you know? And um I still make bad choices, but I'm not put in the kind of situation where those bad choices are going to lead me to prison. Not because I'm a better person. Just because but I have had better nutrition, right? Less less stress at home because I was, I was lived, grew up in a financially stable home. I mean, all of those things, if I don't care about people that weren't born onto third base, like I was, then I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think I should be singing songs in church and taking communion. If that doesn't keep me awake at night, you know, I'm not saying that this idea has to be what all of us are passionate about, but all of us have to find out, okay, what is my active intercession here? And, you know, for me, that happens to be the criminal legal system. And I have friends who it's, it's a homeless situation. And I have friends who it's foster care and friends who it's um, like sex trafficking, but we have to find where we can find our place to intercede as it's
1: been done for us. I love that. Thank you. That is so important and so so powerful. And I'm glad you said it the way that you did because, you know, to just show up in church for an hour and a half and, mm-hmm, and sing mm-hmm. our songs and put our little money in the collection plate and then go home and feel like we've we've <laughs> done just. our part—it's mm-hmm. um, a fallacy. And we need to dig deeper, mm-hmm. more, and see the need and not just like, oh, I'll I'll pray thoughts and prayers. Right? That's what mm-hmm. thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. Yeah,
2: I've been thinking about that a lot. And you know that scripture, I don't know where it is, maybe you guys do, um, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law law of Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, bearing one another's burdens. It can be making a casserole. (laughs) It can be sending a text. But I think, you know, when you say, and so fulfill the law of Christ, what was that? That was total self-sacrifice. Yeah. So we can't get on a bus the second Saturday. (laughs) Sorry. That's bearing one another's burdens. It is. I think it is. And it, it, you know, it's hard, but it should be, it is a joy to do it when we recognize that we're doing it because of this, you know, that we have a purpose that extends beyond ourselves. So I
3: think about, I think about that, that scripture in Luke, when um, Jesus talked and read the scroll for why he came to free the oppressed and to, um, I really just want to read it to you. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, Luke 4. And I, interpreting it from me, I had to say, who am I in in uh, in that scripture and if jesus came for them then i'm who am i so luke 4 get to do a bible lesson 14 it's a little long do you mind Mm -mm. okay jesus returned to galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside he was teaching in the synagogues and everyone praised him he went to nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue and then it his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, a recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scripture, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, who am I in this scripture? I am not poor. I um, I am not the oppressed. I am not a person. But then he said to recovery of the sight for the blind. Hmm. I think that's where we are when we don't take responsibility for sharing the burdens of others. Sight for the blind. I've been blind. I've been blind because I'm not paying attention. The church needs to pay attention. It is our job as ambassadors of Christ, as <clears> we <throat> represent him in reconciliation. Let's not be blind. He's restored it for us. Anyway. Okay. That's just, I
2: okay. want to rec- recommend to the poverty and justice Bible. Okay. Which is a translation. Um, you can get it on Amazon and um it's a Bible that highlights what our obligations are to the poor and to enact justice, particularly when we are in complicit by being I am. I'm complicit in this system. Right. Um, and so uh Yeah, if you're interested in a Bible that would highlight, that would sort of foreground these issues that I think maybe the church hasn't foregrounded enough, um, then I would recommend that
3: Bible. I'm loving Shout out to
2: Michelle Alexander and the Poverty and Justice Bible and
0: Ava DuVernay.
3: Such good stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. They're on the next episode. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be there. I'll be there for sure. I definitely, um, have unpacked a good bit this year around, um, you know, you hear a lot, I I hear a lot of people talking about, well, I was poor. I didn't have the nutrition, you know, but it still is here to your point and Donna, even to what you were talking about with the Bible, but with that story you read, um, you, you had good choices still. And it reminds me of, I don't know if y'all saw Little Fires Everywhere. Uh, my intellectual, my intellectual, uh, biblical, uh, what I'm bringing to this conversation is Little Fires Everywhere. And she, uh, Washington at one point, you know, says like, you didn't make good choices. You had good choices. And, and just the acknowledgement of the difference between that. And I have really, wrestle with unpacking it and it comes with the code like being complicit in the system is because you make these assumptions you tell the narrative that makes you feel better at least i did of why the system works and why everything is the way it should be because Mm -hmm. i'm benefiting from it and Mm. i have the safety nets and even if they aren't necessarily Like my net doesn't have a few holes here and there, but it'll still catch me when I fall, you know, and uh, maybe my watch will fall through, you know, or my cell phone might fall through the net, but I will still be intact. And um, I think that that is something I've really had to unpack a good bit. I feel like this year has been a been most of that unpacking, but um, because it's not just that you weren't poor growing up or you had someone who taught you good nutrition or, you know, there's, I think when you start to pick apart um, at like the, it, you get in the weeds and you pick apart. Well, I didn't have that. And I didn't have that. And you kind of miss the big uh-huh. picture of, well, this is bigger than just, you weren't poor. You had good choices. You have a safety net and it's really something you have to examine. I think for me, especially because the narrative is much easier to swallow than the reality. Right. The reality is really hard. And I have struggled a lot with the reality because that's unsettling and it does keep you up at night and it's hard to know where to start. And it feels very hopeless. And when you haven't been in a world that has felt hopeless, you don't want to stay in a world that feels hopeless. And that has been really challenging.
2: I think but it's I, so important for us to say that too, to say that, you know, we, um, I think we need to say that the prison system as it exists today in the United States is the legacy of slavery, of lynching, of Jim Crow, of segregation. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we've told ourselves
2: ourselves Mm -hmm. a different story. It's a story of personal responsibility, but that is a narrative we've created so that we can sleep at night. It's not a narrative that holds up if you study the system, and this is not fringe. This it's not, this is not out there theory at all. Go, you know, look at the statistics you cannot see, especially if you look at the statistics in the South, um, the old Confederacy, that's yeah. where the, you know, the segregation in the prison system is the
3: strongest. So and It the- started early. what did you say? It started early, it started right from slavery, the criminalization of, of black bodies. is just, you know, um, we become a crime. We become a crime. Without doing anything, you become a crime.
0: Well, I think to kind of um, wrap this up, Is there anything that y'all, like we didn't address yet that y'all really feel like the Catalyst Ministry needs to hear and know? Um, Or circle back to womanism, feminism. How does this fit into the big picture of womanism, feminism? Uh, Do you have any separate thoughts around womanism, feminism? Just kind of any last thoughts as we kind of wrap up the episode.
2: Donna, you go first. I've been talking.
3: Those labels to me are, are hard to um, take on. So I, um, I choose not to. And um, I choose not to because I'm... Um, I, I just want to live in obedience. And I want to live in a place where I surrender my will to Jesus period and whatever that looks like, I'm fine with that. Um, I just don't really wanna be labeled one thing or the other.
0: I don't know if that helps, but that answers the question. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fine. Do you have any thoughts around the legal system that we didn't address for any other catalyst students?
3: Just find a place to serve. Find a place to find your place. And, and that um, you may need to um, um, try stuff out and find your niche. And, and you might need to examine what your
1: passion is. Um, find your niche. I'm still trying to find my niche. And I think it's okay if it changes. Right, Mm -hmm. like for a time period, maybe you're all about, you know, starving pits or, you know, uh, abandoned animals. And then for a certain period, you may want to move into helping victims of domestic violence. And then like, it's okay for your passion to change as Mm -hmm. long as it's not like nothing. Yes, (laughs) do
2: something.
1: And I agree, you don't have to go looking under a rock
3: to serve you just need to be about it
0: mm-hmm. and i think you don't have to take on the weight of the world like right it's like the body of christ like we all have a role and we all have a purpose and if you're doing something you're not passionate about you're going to get burned out and that doesn't help anybody so finding something like um i think staring about i think i've used you quite a bit as an example but finding something in your wheelhouse like teaching you clearly are very good at teaching. So you find a way to teach where it aligns with your calling. And so you teach in prison. I almost said big church. What do we call it? What do adults call Bible class? (laughs) Um, Anyway, but you know, like you just have to find what you're good at. Like my husband is a banker and um, there was a refugee organization that taught people who had just um, came to America how to balance the checkbook or open a bank account. You know, you just, there's Mm -hmm. a lot out there that helps people with what you are already doing. And you just, it it Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be as complicated as stepping outside. It's really great if you step outside of your comfort zone, like that's still a great thing. But there's also, I think a lot that falls in line with what you're already passionate about. Mm -hmm. I think what I
2: would say as a closing comment is, um, We've mentioned several writers that have inspired us. And one of them for me is Brian Stevenson, um, uh-huh. who has started the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, uh-huh. Alabama. And Brian Stevenson says there is power in proximity. Huh. In getting close, you can you can't solve a problem if you can't get close to it. And I I find his he's speaking specifically about incarceration and the death penalty, but I actually find that his words ring true, you know, um, so often in my life to figure out ways to get closer to the issue, to the person, to the community, to, you know, whatever it is. And when you do, when you're riding a bus with those kids, you understand and you can minister. In ways that it's really hard to otherwise. Um, You know, for me, it is. It's going into the prison and teaching, just like I would at Emory. Um, That's not for everybody at all. Uh, And there's things that other people do that I can't even fathom doing. But what is it that we can do and then get proximate? And what, as Christians, what model do we have for that? But, you know, that God would incarnate a part of himself he would turn it literally, he became a human being. Mm, That's proximity. And he lived, I mean, that's right. He, Emmanuel lived among us. And, um, And so I think that Brian Stevenson is speaking from a perspective of criminal justice reform and from death penalty work in particular, but I think that he could be speaking to all of us, no matter if it's criminal justice or any of the other mm-hmm. comments that we have said where we bear one another's burdens. We can do it better if we're willing to be proximate. Is that who
0: the movie Just Mercy is about? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So good. we watched that as a Catalyst Ministry this summer. Um, oh, good. I thought so, yeah. So you can go watch Just Mercy now, too. Yeah. <laughs> After you watch 13th, you can watch Just Mercy.
1: Another movie, uh, oldie but goodie, that I would recommend is Shawshank Redemption. I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody on this call has seen it about 15 times. Mm-hmm. But our Catalyst members may not have yet. And the reason why Shawshank Redemption was such a good movie is because it, um, it gave you the perspective of people in prison, most of whom you didn't really know why, or if you did, it was just like a fleeting reference to something they had done long ago, but you were able to see what their life was like in prison and some of those moments where they were fully human. um, And it made you appreciate those characters as individuals instead of seeing them for the crimes that they had committed. Mm -hmm, mm So um, I think one of the themes that has been discussed throughout this uh, season is seeing people for who they are as individuals and not just putting people in a box or slapping a particular label on them and saying, oh, you're a blank. So everything that I think about that is what you are, Mm -hmm. but really focusing on the humanity in each person and realizing that everyone who is in a particular place in life is not there because they are necessarily a good person or a bad person. And we need to just wipe those labels away and focus on the person.
3: Yeah.
0: And I think there was an um, after, if I'm remembering right the end of that movie and you get to see i'm trying not to spoil it characters after they leave prison Mm -hmm. that was jarring to me as well um because you think once you leave we've talked about this a little bit but you get your life back life as you know it like how can you not just jump back in and i i think i've even seen recently or Uh, maybe an arc or something about how much life has changed for people who have been in prison for 20 years you know or went to prison before computers or the internet and now all of a sudden you know all this stuff is and and that was I remember that specifically from that movie of just Mm -hmm. wow it's not just like family has moved on or Mm -hmm. or it's gone or friends are gone you know it's just it's not as simple as you know going on a, a vacation and you come home and everything yeah Everything is, everything is different.
1: And how, how does that affect you emotionally? How do you just, like it's a game of um, double dutch, how do you just jump back in and try to pick up the pieces where, where you left them 15 years ago? Uh-huh. It's ridiculous.
2: And after being institutionalized, when you're told when to get up, when to eat, when to right. take a shower, right. when to go to bed. And I recently, one of my students was released on October 10th. And he talked about, you know, getting in the car with his parents and they stopped at a quick trip. And he said, he walked in the door of the quick trip. He'd been a combat vet and then served 10 years like so many of our veterans do. Um, mm. Walked into the quick trip and he said in 10 seconds he thought he was having a heart attack. Yeah, He said the smell of the hot dogs, the colors, you know I mean, there's mm. no color in prison and just the people moving around, not in order. Right. i uh, uh, just wander. You got to go like the way you're prescribed. Uh, I mean, and then imagine, you know, and I had others describe to me going into Walmart to try to get deodorant and there were 25 kinds of deodorant. Yes. And he uh, said, people were going like this, he didn't know this emotion. He didn't know the phone. You know how we're all walking around going like this yeah. on our phone. He was like, it was so bizarre to see people going like this on their hand. He hadn't seen a cell
3: phone. Well, I guess you feel like an alien. Sure.
2: Yeah. And I've had, I've had multiple students get out and say they can't sleep in their beds. They have to sleep on the floor. Yeah. That's really common. And I've had, I've had students say one of the hardest things is learning how to cross the street again. Your brain stops measuring how fast the cars are coming. And if you just serve 20 to 30 years, you haven't, you haven't seen a car coming at you. You don't know how to measure. And that's the kind of thing we can't even imagine, you know, um, the, and then put on all the, you know, then, you know, they're paying for parole. Sometimes they're wearing an ankle monitor that costs, you have to pay for those.
3: Mm-hmm. You know?
2: Wow. Yeah, I know.
0: So, well, I lied about wrapping up. Cause I have one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and maybe the answer is that we need to sit in this, but, um, is there hope or do we need to sit in this uncomfortability of, we need to care a lot about this and not try to cling to the hope to make ourselves feel better. Or maybe I'm speaking on behalf of me, cause this is heavy and this is hard. Um, and about this time, every episode i basically cry. So I'm almost there. So, um, is this something that we should sit in and wrestle with or is there hope? I think they're the same thing.
3: Um, because the process of, um, repentance, there's some lament in there. I'm not talking about shame. i talking about lament. When you yeah. just grab a hold of the sitting in it, you sit in it because you have hope. Otherwise you have no motivation to sit in it. So lament in it and then get up and recognize that um, you belong to Jesus and he died for you. That's your hope. That's your hope. So to me, they're, they're, they're combined, sit in it and realize that you have responsibility because you belong to him. And if you have surrendered your will to his, then you have hope.
2: I love that, Donna. And i you know, I'm glad you said that about lament. I don't think Americans are very good at lament.
3: Uh-uh. The church isn't.
2: The church isn't. But when you read the Psalms, you know, the Psalms do two things. They exalt the goodness of God and they mm-hmm. lament the evil in the world. Yep. And they do them both, you know? And I, you know, David was a man after God's own heart. And so is there hope? Well, there's the God, the God there's there is good, God is a good God. And yes, there is evil in this broken world and we can be his instruments, to yep. enact good, I've um, I think there's hope, especially just the fact that we were even invited to do this tonight means there's hope,
1: right? This is an important conversation, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm grateful too, to have just, this. Just think about you know the potential for lives being altered just by the fact of this conversation. You know, like people who had never thought about this particular aspect of society as something they could or should get involved with or had never heard about this organization as some way that they could volunteer and give back once a month. I mean, the the ripple effect of just this conversation is a potentially beautiful one and so You know, it starts with just awareness and then prayerfully things change because of that. I want to say one other thing about North
3: Atlanta. Um, You know, we've had this anchor ministry and a lot of the women that we serve in the anchor ministry are felons. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of them bring their children to church and we have embraced them. And that's a big thing for them that they're able to worship and drop their kids off. is a big thing. And then they have a spiritual mentor to talk about spiritual things with. So if you don't get to do that, you can support the woman coming out of prison who's been struggling with drugs or whatever, then that's yet another um, way of service. Um, I'm grateful for North Atlanta. i stayed in that ministry a long, long time. And it gets better every year. Um, that's another place to serve too.
0: Um. Well, thank you both so much for all that you do with, oh boy, let me start over. What's it called, FAM? Forever Family. Forever Family, I knew it was forever, but I couldn't remember the, okay. Let me start over.
3: I would have joined that if, if Sarah hadn't asked, you know, so I'm grateful for, um, I don't know how you got to um, know uh, Sandra Bornhill. I was
2: on her board. Okay. Her board of directors for many years. I, I just stepped off two years ago, last year actually.
0: Okay. Well, thank you both so much for joining our conversation, for all that you had to share, for all that you do for Forever Family and North Atlanta. Um, you guys are treasures, and I'm so grateful that we had this time, even though it was challenging in a good way. Um, but like Sarah said, awareness is incredibly important, and um, just, I think, unpacking more of what reality is for people who don't have the same experiences as you um, is also incredibly important, I think, this year especially. So um, I'm so grateful so glad that y'all were vulnerable with us and shared openly and we're Holy spirit led and um, bringing us back to the truth of Jesus and the Bible. That was so special to me. And I think it's very easy sometimes to go through life um, kind of in two different lanes, you know, where this is justice in America and then this is church and like those things sometimes don't always intersect. And so mm-hmm. It was really cool that we had an opportunity to have almost every conversation or every topic we talked about, and we had a example from the Bible or uh, literally a reading. Um, That is such a, I think, beautiful example of how to weave in the gospel and the Bible and what we're called to as Christians into life and what life looks like here. And um, I think that's just a really powerful example of how to do life so you all are inspirational and I'm just so glad that you joined um thank you thank you thank you um um, the next episode that we have coming for y'all is going to be all about being or not being a mom and all that that entails or doesn't entail so uh don't miss out that'll be in a few weeks but next week we will be discussing this conversation on zoom call live so that will all be in our instagram profile the zoom call and how to how to join us there so don't miss that we will be live chatting about all of um this conversation and anything you want to unpack a little bit more we are more than welcome or you're more than welcome to or more than willing to discuss it so we will link as much as we possibly can to all of the things we talked about, whether it be resources um, or forever family, we will make sure, make sure that anything that we talked about is available to you. You can find a way to get a hold of it um, because it's really important to us that you can track down the resources we mentioned. They're incredibly powerful. But um, stay safe and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you.